You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Today, we're visiting San Francisco with our old friend, Dave Geeson, who's the director of the Henry George School of Social Studies in that fine town. Now, Dave, uh, welcome back to the show. Been a while? Yes, it has been. It's great to hear your voice again and uh, wish you could visit again or that I would make time and energy to (laughs) visit Australia, perhaps. But we can do it here by the magic of radio. Yes, well, with uh, just three weeks left of uh, the Renegade Economist's weekly edition, uh, it's good to catch up with old friends. So, uh, Dave, uh, one of the hot issues in San Francisco of recent has been something called Proposition C. This brings together some of our favourite topics. Listeners, it's a 0.5% tax on companies with gross receipts uh, greater than $50 million. That's on local businesses in San Francisco, i.e. the Silicon Valley types. And that yeah. that proposal was to uh, basically nicknamed the homelessness tax. Uh, and, uh, Dave, it caused a bit of controversy. Yes. Predictably, the real estate industry and... Most big businesses and most bigger techies were opposed to it. Uh, Notably, the uh, Salesforce Corporation came out in favor of the the, uh, proposition and, in fact, antied up quite a bit of money to promote Proposition C, which, as you noted, would elevate the attacks on, on firms earning more than $50 million, a gross receipts tax, and bump that up a bit and devote those monies to homeless uh, programming. And uh, what, was, what was appealing about it is it was not a, a tax. In fact, it passed. It was not a tax on, on the public, at least not directly. So immediately, uh, where does that sit on your Georgia's radar uh, taxing large companies like this? Is it a good thing? Well, it's mixed. My thought is that it's it's an indiscriminate tax. That is, it's not it's it's taxing earned income presumably as well as unearned income, and in that regard, it's second rate way of going after revenue that's unearned. Again, you know, there's no doubt unearned income somewhere in there, but how much of it, don't know. The firms can certainly stand to ante up a bit more, but at the same time, just following a principle, if this tax were onerous enough, presumably large businesses would do what Chevron did, oh, over 15, maybe it was 20 years ago now, and just move their headquarters across the bay to, in in that case, to Richmond, where they had their refineries, but their headquarters were still in San Francisco. But they finally just said to hell with San Francisco uh, do-goodism and taxes and shifted locations. So it's, it's not a tax on land values directly. So it's not going after necessarily unearned income. So again, it's a, it has its ambiguous effect. And the money, let's just make this plain, the money's going to go for your homeless programming, but nothing that will 
in fact, fix society such that the, the, the problem at its root is going to be addressed. But I don't want to poo-poo doing good. I just learned recently that the band Pearl Jam is donating along with other uh, entities something along the order of $10 million for homeless alleviation in Seattle, up in Washington State. And that's a good thing. If it puts people in shelter tonight and maybe for another month or three months, if it actually builds some housing, that will be a long-term subsidized circumstance for people who need that sort of economic undergirding. That's all to the good. I support it. But it's it's not justice. It's only a bit of Band-Aid and maybe a pretty big Band-Aid remediation. And that's what Proposition C is. Uh, a lot, almost certainly it will put a lot of uh, do-gooders, and I don't really mean to sound so dismissive, but it will put more um, functionaries to work, and that's a good thing too. That is, it will create jobs providing services for the homeless, and that means money in the pockets of uh, high-minded, well-intentioned, uh, not necessarily just middle class, but I suspect, predictably, mostly middle-class graduates of one college or university or another who graduated with a social work degree and need employment. I, I'm not saying that facetiously. That's reminiscent of uh, teach a man how to fish and he can look after himself type thinking. How does that apply in this situation? It, it does. The story goes that the... Uh, you give a man a fish and uh, he'll eat for the day. And on the other hand, if you teach him how to fish, uh, he'll be able to feed himself tomorrow after seeing you model the fishing technique, if you're, in fact, a fisherman yourself. And, of course, you extend that to any – What you? As a, I'm a school teacher. And just today in ninth grade U.S. history, we were right at the introduction of to students to, and mostly incidentally, I teach at a German international school. So there's a lot of students who are not familiar with the American history. And I'm introducing it to them for the first time. So they, they may have heard of the Declaration of Independence. And for the most part, none of my 17 students had. And there's that mighty assertion of natural rights, the right to life. Well, the right to life must mean a right to use this earth. It's not a right to have housing. It's not a right to have food put on your plate, but it's a right to have an equal opportunity with anyone else to put, to fetch that food either out of the ground or off the hoof and uh, feed, feed oneself. And the, and the same with housing. That is, it's not a right to, to housing. It's a right to be able to create housing. I also want to parenthetically say that I am no uh, skin flint libertarian who says that government should produce social goods such as housing, but I do believe, in fact, I actually endorse that, but it ought to be by decision of the entire community to allocate revenue in that direction. I don't think it's a right. But anyway, back to, to natural right. It's not a natural right to... Uh, it shouldn't be a natural. Well, it should, it should be a natural right to be poor. That is, if you don't want to work but have the opportunity, truly, to generate a, a, not just an income but a livelihood. By a livelihood, uh, I mean it could be a money-free circumstance one lives in. One's living off the land. 
But as Georgists, it's a little too simplistic to say, well, if everyone should simply have equal access to, to land itself. At this point in time, there's too few of us who, and I include myself, but certainly in this number, there's too few of us who could actually probably feed ourselves. If I were given three acres of the most fertile soil, I'd have a hard time growing uh, a, a sufficient amount of food for myself, much less a family over uh, at least the short term. Uh, I just don't have that skill. Mm. I'm daunted by it. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps needlessly, you know, maybe it's, uh, maybe it comes naturally, but I, I find it hard to fathom. And where I'm heading with this is we, we have a natural right as, as Georgia see it to an equal share of the socially generated value of location, location, location. Prop C is going to do, it will directly create that equality of opportunity. It may, by alleviating the current distress of any number, possibly hundreds, of otherwise homeless folk or marginally housed folk, it may put them in a circumstance of security in which they will take advantage of opportunities to educate themselves. So in other words, by no, no longer having to live hand to mouth, they may have the opportunity to educate themselves and in the language of the do-gooders to better themselves. But as Georgists, our perspective is, yeah, you know, you're certainly responsible for bettering yourself, but you shouldn't have to better yourself under the circumstance of essentially being a sharecropper. And by sharecropper, I'm speaking mostly metaphorically. Historically, the sharecropper was the person who landless had to approach a landowner. This is in the southern part of the United States from approximately the end of the Civil War through the American Civil War through, I believe it was 1940 when the crop lien system was abolished. And this, the sharecropping was, system was one by which a, a landless person would go to a landowner and say, I'll work your land and I'll give you somewhere between 20 and 50% of the value of that crop, usually cotton, in exchange for your giving me the opportunity to, uh, to, to farm that land. Now, in historic fact, uh, this may seem like we've gone far away from Proposition T, but I'll I'll connect these two. Um, in in the South, what this meant was typically you you never sold the crop for money because during the year, while you're waiting for that crop to come to term to be harvested and then sold, you had to live on credit, and the person you pledged the crop to was, you know, may have been your landowner, but may not have been. But in any event, you were living on credit and the interest on that credit was between 10 and get this 200%. So it was extreme at that time. And so typically sharecroppers never got out of debt. They ended up remaining essentially serfs. And, uh, and bound to the land in that way because no other, they couldn't get credit anywhere except with the initial creditor who until that debt was paid off. Well, Proposition C will, uh, to it may relax the debt, the obligation, the, the duress of folks. In fact, it will do that. 
to a certain extent, but will it be enough to liberate those who are distressed enough to begin generating positive income for themselves or not? Yes, it's a world of Band-Aids, really, and uh, people are moving closer and closer to the... um the sharecropping model, and we had an interesting comment on our earth-sharing website recently from Melanie who said, uh, all my life I've observed creative people unable to create due to not owning land. I yearn to grow food to be able to be with the soil, but how? I live in a bus to avoid the rental costs, but always must move on. I see large tracts of land owned by one old person, a few animals graze where I could create a Garden of Eden. Creativity and the gifts of good people lie fallow because we cannot secure a place on earth to grow. What can we do? I seek a way, says Melanie. Oh, my. So that really sums up this discussion, doesn't it, Dave? Yes, that's the cry of humanity down the ages. Nothing new. The first time that, uh, you know, this is not an original statement, but you'll, you'll find this in literature from the Hebrews, even before the Hebrews on to the, the present, which is uh, the first time somebody fenced a piece of land, and usually it was a desirable piece of land. It wasn't a marsh. It wasn't a bog. It was the place where if you attended to the soil, you produced a better return at a larger crop than you might somewhere else. The first time someone enclosed that piece of land, Mischief was done in the world, and you could say mischief is too kind and gentle a word for the the dark oppression, which has attended humanity since civilization found its feet, quite literally. You know, when people first settled in one place, there was born the the opportunity for some to create that enclosed space and to displace others. Listeners, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist. This week we're in discussion with Dave Geeson from the Henry George School of Social Sciences in San Francisco. And Dave, yeah, the the potential of land value tax to enable this equality of opportunity would see uh, those empty nesters that have large properties, large homes with empty bedrooms, uh, grazing horses and so forth, there would be just a, a touch more pressure on them to actually use that land productively and they may recognise that it's uh, that there are no financial imperatives to actually downsizing and moving someone more, somewhere more appropriate. Now, somehow we need to find a way to change that culture so that it's seen as uh, being part of your civic duty as uh, a retiree to... Um, uh, act as custodians of that land to leave it in a better place for the next generation and then to hand that over uh, willingly for mm. a, a just reward. But at the moment, there's all these financial impediments from doing that and all of uh, a lot of inability for people to recognise the beauty of the, the, the uh, inspiration of change. And we see a lot of people in Australia, I often joke that we have this 
TV show called Neighbours, which is an international success, probably never made it to America, but all through Europe. Very popular about uh, these relationships between neighbours. But for me, I find it uh, quite a rarity to see effective urban neighbourhoods where people actually work together. Um, It's often uh, dominated by bickering. And, uh, yeah, I just wonder, um, uh, as someone who's been involved in this movement for a long time, how you see uh, those sort of cultural norms changing. Hmm. What just come to mind is uh, a poem written by a San Francisco native. That's Robert Frost, uh, the fine American poet associated chiefly with New England. He composed a poem, Mending Wall, and it has a a line in it, good walls make good neighbors. That's a paraphrase. And oftentimes uh, the the poem is mistakenly taken to mean that, you know, putting up that wall, and by mending wall, putting up the stones that are fitted together to create a stone wall, marking the boundary between two properties. The, The poem actually begins with this line, something there is that doesn't love a wall. And there's something bigger than just an individual life in the universe that tends towards a felicitous sort of entropy, wants to knock these membranes, these partitions down that separate us. And that action, that force, uh, that... uh, not just primitive, but that primitive force that the doubt will be also be accurate to say of the universe, which includes the spirit in human beings that wants to have us reach out and take our figuratively speaking, and sometimes quite literally take our fellow citizens and beyond our frontier of national boundaries, our fellow earth planet dwellers and take their hand as brothers and sisters and say, yes, this is, this too is yours. Uh, meaning the, not just the right, but the, 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 the bounty of, of place. But there's no gainsaying that the, the history of humanity since it's gone into recorded fashion is the history of, Traducements of of abridgments of the the equal, you know, the equal what necessity of access of of realizing the I'm I'm stumbling here because I'm a little reluctant to use the word natural right. That's such a problematic term. It suggests that there's something written somewhere, and as I said earlier, I've I'm a school teacher, and one of my students, one of the students, as we were speaking of natural rights, as it uh, pertains and is used as a bit of logic in the Declaration of Independence, the American Declaration of Independence, uh, he said, well, a natural right, I mean, what is that? It's not written. It's just a feeling. Wouldn't your answer be that... uh natural rights maybe but uh birth rights is perhaps a a, f- a uh easier concept to relate to particularly uh for those who have some understanding of dare i mention it the bible and uh 
many of the mm-hmm. writings mm-hmm. in there about, f- yeah. for example, are we all being born onto the planet as equals. Yeah, well, I mean, we're certainly born with the same needs, the fundamental needs. We, unless we eat, we we perish. Unless we breathe, unless we drink water, and uh, and Benjamin Franklin, of course, would say beer too. God, uh, beer is proof that God loves us. It's been attributed to Benjamin Franklin. So there's, there's other things to drink. But the point here is, I, I like personally. I I'm comfortable with this with the phrase birthright, but I the only reason one would say that too is that you have, one has a sense, a feeling, as the student put it, that there's a birthright there. I I posed. To the students, if you were given a you know the choice of saving one human or 500 wild buffalo, what would it be? And we come down on the side of the human being. I mean, I think most of us would. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's a feeling. But if you count it in terms of uh, lives lost, that simple calculation is is numerically, I think, pretty easy to make. So birthright, my point is, yeah, who's, who's speaking? <laughs> Any one of those buffalo would say, it's my birthright, if it could speak. And in the language of buffalo, when it dashes away or charges, it is, in fact, declaring, this is my birthright to defend myself to the death if necessary. Dave, uh, it must be hard for people to recognize uh how we can be so passionate about tax geekery and that lead to uh, uh, social <laughs> outcomes. But <laughs> I mentioned yeah, earlier uh, yeah. the shareholders of planet Earth, and I know one of the criticisms of Georgism is that people think that is going to lead to the plundering of the planet. But uh, just quickly, if uh, at least probably mm-hmm. 50 to 60% of the revenue comes from land values and about... from the mining sector. Um, Is this going to drive us to mine everything on the planet? Well, there is, you know, uh, (laughs) I do believe, in fact, there's good evidence. This is science. This is science. Uh, It's not enough to have the right public revenue program. There has to be the proper sharing of that revenue. And we can see uh, two examples startling in their outcomes. Uh, neither complete, meaning neither a, a thoroughgoing LVT, but comparing Saudi Arabia with nationalized oil revenue and Norway with nationalized oil revenue. Uh, let's look at those two societies. One is very democratic Norway, of course, where there's great participation by a great number of citizens in the allocation of resources. And we see a very, comparatively, a very green economy. We see a very green ethos, a commitment to not burning it all up, not exploiting every last aspect of, uh, of the public resource. And then we look at Saudi Arabia uh, and we see a very different outcome where Yes, nominally it's nationalized, but most of it goes to the elite family, the solid family, and then the nobility and 
like the average Saudi Arabian is living nicely, but more like a like a, a Spaniard of the 17th century, where with all that gold and silver from the New World, the work ethos of the Spaniards themselves was compromised. Well, that's certainly the case in Saudi Arabia. And uh, it's, it's, again, not to recap that, it's not enough to simply go after that proper revenue, but how is it applied? So it's possible that in a Georgist, uh, with LVT, if the public chose to uh, take out, to, to exploit every, before the seventh generation gets hold of it, to exploit every uh, dollar of revenue from, from resources that it could, it could be bleak. Uh, I, I, don't, I, don't, uh, I don't say that that's an impossibility, but I do say this, that as a moral point, that would be, if it were democratically, Republican democratically uh, determined how to use, how to extract and how to use those resource and resource values, that's on all of us. Compare that with, well, recently I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to be mean and nasty, but it's a case in point. The passing of uh, George Bush, the first, his uh, his family's great wealth comes from oil explo- exploitation, and uh, there's a great deal of wealth transferred to a family, which is translated into political power and uh, great renown and fame, as well as uh, great rancor and feeling by many with respect to him. But if society as a whole wants to put the gun to its head, that's morally superior than having just one family in that position to do so, or you know, or an oligarchy or an elite class do so. So, again, I uh, there's still, even with LVT in place, there's still moral imperatives uh, before us that must be taken up. I do believe, on the other hand, in in a world in which it is a given that that LVT, that land values, will be socialized. That to, to even get to that place would require a, a a sensibility of brotherhood and sisterhood that would extend to not just other human beings, but to other. Uh, other life. And that would say habitat can't be extinguished for these other creatures just because, and and plants for that matter, uh, simply to keep feeding our subscription to Netflix, as it were. Well, Dave Geeson, we better better wrap it up there. Um, If people... Just a, a quick plug, uh, if you're ever in San Francisco, you must, must go on Dave's uh, a weekly walking tour of San Francisco and people can find the details to that, Dave, on what website? Visit thecommonsff.org. So that's the, the commons with an S, it's plural, the commons, and then SF for sanfrancisco.org, thecommonsf.org, and uh, you can learn all about the uh, the time, place, and some of the, 
the uh, itinerary of uh, of that walking tour, a, a survey of social movement history that's not just historic in in uh, in aspect, but that looks at how how might we learn from social movements of the past and including the present, uh, and find a a unifying principle. And the walk, as you listeners might anticipate, and suggests that it's by sharing not just figuratively, not poetically, but quite literally through a land value tax, the value of place. Thanks, Carl, for this opportunity to be part of this series. You, we, we, you invited me so many times to be part of this program. It's remarkable that in the 11 years we had up till this very uh, almost last gasp come to it, but I'm grateful for it. Your persistence. Well, you too, mate. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, the story will continue one way or another. There will always be uh, stewards of this economic policy, ensuring that uh, it's it's remembered that uh, we should all have some earth rights. An earth rights democracy is what's really needed to deliver true freedom. 